Hey everybody, this is Carlos. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with one of my favorite people in the entire hobby, Michael Roscoe of the Reptile Shop. Michael's not only one of the best boa breeders on the planet, but he's also one of the nicest and most helpful guys in the industry. We're going to talk about how he got involved in the boa game and what his plans are for the upcoming season. We're also going to talk about his work with the TNS team and how it could revolutionize the hobby. Finally, we're going to talk about vending shows and some tips and tricks to help you prepare to vend your first reptile show. Boa Rack Radio is on the air now. Welcome everybody to Boa Rack Radio. I'm your host, Carlos Rojas of Morphs Unlimited. Our guest today is Michael Roscoe of the Reptile Shop. So for those that don't know, Michael is one of the premier breeders of boas in the entire world. Mike's known for his outstanding work bringing super lively colors into the VPI gene. He's based out of Southern California, and he also runs the Reptile Shop. And uh, he also has a top-of-the-line breeding facility that constantly produces top-quality boas, ball pythons, and other reptiles. More importantly, Michael is one of the true road warriors of the West Coast reptile show circuit. And regardless whether you're buying a $50 snake from the guy or a $5,000 boa, Michael has always been the type of guy that basically will take time out of his day to help out a potential customer in any way possible. My brother, welcome to the show, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me, bro. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, dude. So, dude, um, obviously, I've known you for a while, but for those who haven't had a chance to talk to you, or maybe they've talked to you at a show, but really haven't had the chance to know you, kind of give everybody a little bit of your background and how you ended up getting involved with boas. So, so it starts from a, from a long time of being into reptiles my whole life. It started off when I was a kid. Um, we moved from San Diego to rural Riverside County, and I was out herping, looking for animals all the time. Some neighborhood kids found a rosy boa, and, uh, and I really wanted it. I went out and looked my ass off for a rosy boa, and I could not find one. And uh, my dad went to those neighborhood kids and bought it for me. <laughs> and so, so it started there. And then, you know, and then I had reptiles my whole life. I was at like seven years old. So I had reptiles my whole life. And then later on in life, um, actually, I had a couple of boas, but my wife was really digging boas. And oh, really? so, huh. yeah, so we, we bought a couple of like nicer animals. And I had had, I'd been breeding a ton of stuff at the time. And I bought a couple of higher end animals and then it just, it just snowballed from there, dude. <laughs> okay. So when you kind of first started coming into like the hobby, uh, did you come into colubrids first? Like what was kind of the main thing that you focused, focused well, on? Because it's you, like, it's funny. So, so no. So back in the day, um, I did a deal where I bought a group of leopard geckos. I was young. I, oh, I okay. made a loan for my grandfather to go buy out a leopard gecko colony from a, a local reptile shop in Orange County. And uh, <clears throat> I bought a group, set them up, produced with them, and uh, and I actually ended up having that um, having having that translate to what I ended up doing is I produced a ton of babies, and I started selling to a bunch of pet stores in San Diego. It was where right. I lived at the time, and uh, one of the shops named the Animal House um, oh, yeah, was actually the yeah. So he was actually the promoter of the herba shows in downtown san diego back in the day oh yeah so i had all these geckos i had been selling them i had been going to the show for a few years and so i went and talked to ray and i was like hey man i want to i want to set up a booth and he was like well you know you, you got a business license you know kid you know like and i was like right, right, right. no like you know what do i got to do man i want a table i got all these geckos like you bought my geckos like let me you know let me let me jump in and um so long story short i ended up working off my table in the shop he gave me a little table by the door, 
I had like half a table. I had a bunch of leopard geckos. I sold out, killed it. I sold out like by noon on Saturday. Oh man! And because I had a bunch of killer geckos and they're reasonably priced, I probably underpriced them, not knowing the market very well. <laughs> I'm sure I pissed some people off, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then I went around the show, and I wanted to invest in colubrids. I'd really been into colubrids. I'd been keeping king snakes as well. And um, I made my ra- my rounds around the show, and you know, people are kind of like, ah, piss off, kid. And I end up at uh, Randy Wright's booth. And I don't know if you remember Randy Wright, oh, but yeah. he did an assortment of species forever. He just retired a couple of years ago. And um, I end up at his booth, and I'm you know, I'm, you know, I'm chatting with him. And he actually took the time to like explain to me the genetics behind what I was looking at and I was trying to, you know, tell him what I was interested in. And I ended up buying like $800 for the King snakes from Randy at that show. Oh man. And he was like, you know, I was like, okay, well, you know, will you do me a deal on that trio and I want this pair. And he's like, Hey kid, you know, that's like 900 bucks. I was like, well, what are you doing for eight? <laughs> you know, he kind of looked at me. I was, I was, so, so let me just recap. This was in 1997. I was 15 years old. Right. So, so I bought that group of animals and from there on out, dude, it was just, I went wild and I had colubrids and geckos. And then later on, I started really delving into boas and, um, it just, it, it kind of snowballed from there. Like I said earlier, now here we are. <laughs> yeah, man, that's crazy, dude. So like, let me ask you outside of, uh, just reptiles itself. Cause obviously since that is your business, that kind of consumes like a big chunk of your life. What other stuff are you into? Well, so I, li- I really like herping, which is, I mean, it's, I know you said outsider reptiles, but herping's a blast for me. I have a really good time herping. And then I really enjoy music, dude. I like to go to shows. Um, I listen to a, a wide variety of music, but mostly I listen to like a lot of old punk rock and psychobilly. And I like to go to little shows and, you know, just check out the scene and have a good time. Um, and then, you know, the normal stuff, you know, camping, hiking, the river, the beach, just, you know, the normal outdoorsy stuff which is usually is also including herping <laughs> yeah no i'm with you man actually uh when i lived in san diego in like the late 90s early 2000s dude uh i think like the thing to do was to link up with bill townsend and go herping with him as he like told us nice. like, old stories of like you know his punk days so yeah. that's awesome dude that's that's really awesome well herping in san diego back in those days was awesome so i lived in spring valley and okay. i used to go herp otai like ride my mountain bike out there yeah, yeah, yeah. and go herp otai lakes tough bro that was my stomping grounds yeah dude that's actually pretty badass <laughs> yeah no I, I remember those days man those were those were the good old days yeah no doubt Before it's a little different out there up. now yeah, yeah yeah man it was there's a lot less there now it's I mean, I, good thing Otai Lakes is like a preserve, but it's definitely like, it's like million dollar houses all the way around it now. <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. But you know what? All the Lake. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. But I wouldn't be surprised if like in those random hillsides you see, somebody's got a like a board line down. You know what I mean? Oh, bro. It's it's probably Jeff Lim. <laughs> yeah, definitely Lim. <laughs> I mean, he's got board it, lines all over the place. Yeah, for sure, man. I, you know, you probably sneak onto one of those if uh, if you hook him up with like a good fishing trip here or there, dude. Because I know he's right, exactly, exactly. He's way into fishing too, man. Yeah, for sure, dude, for sure. So, dude, um, let's talk a little bit about the reptile shop, man. Like, how did that come up, and how did you go from being like this hobby breeder to eventually kind of this guy that was doing it for a little bit of money on the side to eventually going full out and like setting up a, a you know. A straight up retail store, right? Well, it was it was a long trajectory, man. So I'll, I'll I'll back up a couple of steps. So as I was, you know, 
following other career paths and you know you know i had a pretty good regular job but the whole time i had a pretty legitimate um bowling colubrid facility going i mean probably for the last 16 years probably and so i was i've been growing and growing i was kind of outgrowing where i was at anyway and um so i was what I was doing, I was producing, selling, hitting the shows, and I also sold to like some some re, like resellers that sold to pet shops and stuff. And I was doing it, I was doing it pretty big. And so, kind of around the same time, two things happened. One, my company. So I was a field um, superintendent for a company I was working at. So I had a lot of flexibility. So I was able to still like do deals and meet with customers and and do sales. I just clock out of the job and handle biz even you know even during the day so it was real flexible for what i was trying to do and they were really pushing me to go in the office and then right around the same time i had an opportunity with a buddy of mine who owned a who owned a pretty large wholesale facility that uh that he wanted he was wanting me to step up and do more business for him so long story short he uh he offered me a job and i was like man i don't i don't think that i want to go work for somebody if I was going to do this, I'd probably do it on my own, you know, and then, you know, we got to talking and I ended up buying into that other company, which is, it's just a wholesale company where we resell to a bunch of mom and pop pet shops around the country. Oh, and that's cool. we also, and that's also the same company. We do most of our import and export for the ham shows. We do a lot of our uh, international shipping through that company. So that's the company that does most of that, you know, non-retail, non-breeding facility stuff. And so, so I bought into that and quit my job and went both feet right into that and then i so let me ask you man how did that feel because i know that's like the biggest hurdle for a lot of people like that scares the shit out of a lot of herpers man and i I had a good i had a good job too and and, and i took a substantial pay cut and luckily i really had the support of my wife you know she had been um she'd been in school for a long time she got her master's got a good job and uh, when I when I came home and I said, "Hey, honey, you know, so I'm, you know, I have this opportunity to, you know, jump into a reptile business, but it's a substantial pay cut. You know, we're talking like like probably a thirty or forty thousand dollar year pay cut at least. Yeah, for sure. I, I thought she was gonna be like, get out, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, she was like, you know what? You buckled down and busted your ass while I was in school, and you know, while we were, you know, having a hard times, so I could do what right. I wanted to do. It's your turn. Go for it. And I was like, really? That's <laughs> well, awesome, shit. Dude. Yeah, it was, it was it was awesome, man. I'm really I couldn't have done it without her support for sure. And um, so so I went and I you know negotiated a deal with my my current business partner, and uh, and I, I made the leap. It was a it was a it was a big leap, and it scared the shit out of me. But you know, it's I think a lot of a a lot of just in life, just a good life lesson, man. It's it's you get out what you put into it. If you work hard, it doesn't matter what you're doing, dude. If you work your ass off and you really dedicate yourself. And, and you're and you're and you're driven and you're motivated. There's nothing you can't do. So I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna jump in both feet and do my best. And you know, I can't I can't say that I you know that I gave it my all or did my best or followed my passion. If I never give it a shot. So <clears throat> I did it, dude. And it was uh, <laughs> it was definitely scary, bro. It was terrifying. And um, and it's in a you know it's in a market. So I, my previous job was a really solid, you know, necessary market. I was a field superintendent for an electrical service contractor. Okay. And I'd been there for a long time. I managed um, Home Depot, Lowe's, Best Buy contracts for the West Coast. Oh, wow. And so we had a lot of technicians in the field. So it was a really good, steady 
good gig. And I just, I said, hey, I got walked in and gave my two-week notice right in the middle of them trying to give me a promotion, and they just about shit themselves. <laughs> wow, dude. And so I made the leap, and then not too long later, um, I had always been friends with uh, Kyle and Rory, the reptile shop, and they had moved from a retail facility to a breeding facility because they just weren't big in the, you know, the, the public traffic. They just wanted to work with the animals. And yeah, they were like more I, in like Old Town Temecula, right? Like, I'm trying to recall yeah, where at. Yeah, they were they were kind of like like literally three blocks away from Old Town Temecula. Okay, and yeah, so I I remember the shop. Well, they moved from a retail location to there, so. And, and I know that they wanted to both take a step back and kind of pursue their own thing and not be tied to the shop all the time because they were always there. So they approached us about, you know, working something out. You know, we ended up hammering out a deal. This was in 2005. And it's not too, or not 2005, I'm sorry, uh, 2015. And this was not too long after I had quit and bought into this other company. So I made another leap. And we decided to go for it. So we, we took over the reptile shop then, and we kept it at that location for a couple of years, and ran it as a breeding facility. And and we just there was just an just you know people would be knocking on the door all the time like hey we want feeders hey we're looking for this hey we're looking for that and it was just it was apparent that we needed to open for retail. So after about I don't know we took it over and about six months later we opened the front door for like feeder sales and small retail set up the front office as a as a retail area and quickly outgrew that. So last year, um, we decided to move to a new location and have more of an emphasis on the retail part of the business. So we consolidated some of our breeders. Um, I took some of the high-end stuff home. We have our other facility up the hill, so I took some of the more production-type stuff up there, moved into a new building, built it all from scratch the way we wanted to do it, um, built a whole you know front retail room, built a ball python room, boa room, rodent room, and then we got a warehouse storage in the back. So we uh, we set up the reptile shop for retail, and we moved, and so we had our grand opening on on leap day, February 29th this year. It was it was a went off with a hitch, without a hitch, I should say. We had like 12, 1,500 people show up. Um, sales are great. Everything's going good. Like I I can't I can't be happier. I didn't want some big like massive store that was just run of the mill. So we've, we're, it's, a, it's a smaller shop that's focused on more of a refined version of a, what you might get for a regular retail shop. Gotcha. So we've got a lot of higher end animals in there. It's you know real clean, real neat, real organized, not overwhelming with a bunch of crap in there. We've got some cool display animals in there. And, um, and it's, I mean, we, we quadrupled the size of our previous retail area. And we're already outgrowing it. So it's a good problem. It's definitely a good problem. No, for sure, man. So roughly um, give us a little bit overview of like the breeding facility size-wise, maybe some of the species you're working with there and maybe uh, kind of what's going on with the reptile shop. Because like you're saying, you're almost already outgrowing the place, so. Yeah, well, we're 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 eyeballing a couple of suites next to us, <laughs> but um, that so that building's only it's only about is this just shy twenty four hundred square feet? The retail shop's about six hundred, and then we have a room for ball pythons and you know baby inventory in the next area back, and then we've got a little area in the back split behind there that's half bow room, and then there's a hallway that goes to the restrooms and the wash station, and we have a rodent room in the back. And then a warehouse. So it's 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 there's a lot crammed in there. And there we pretty much primarily focus on producing bows and ball pythons. That's that's the majority of what we do there. 
We have another facility where we do a bunch of other stuff too. Plus I have a bunch of personal stuff at home, which is probably more than I need. <laughs> but I have a bunch of different stuff here that, that I work with here as well. But uh, at the reptile shop, the so it's bow-wise, we're really focused on good quality Red Panther DPI stuff, um, good quality sharp combo stuff, Scoria stuff. And then we, you know, we've got a couple of like Sun Dragon projects, a couple of ING projects, ING Snow projects. Um, we're just we're just trying to really refine what we're doing over there and not have a bunch of production animals and have more of like the creme de la creme of quality of what the reference the the representation of what we're trying to do and what our direction is, which is going to be just the best quality color animals that we can work on, and that's going to be mostly based around. The Red Panther stuff that I inherited some of it from the shop and had some previously. And then the uh, we have some really killer sharp stuff. And it goes all the way back to uh so let's see, it goes back to class reptilia. And oh, wow. that so some of that lineage came through, you know, Kyle had a bunch of that stuff when we picked up at the shop. I had some cool sharp stuff, and then you know when we when we bought the shop, I kind of you know I got rid of some stuff, and then I brought in some of the stuff that I had for my personal collection, and then we made a couple of key acquisitions to kind of transfer the direction of the shop to where we wanted it to go, and I think it's coming together nice, man. We have uh, we have some cool plans in the future for stuff. We have a lot of cool projects coming down the pipe. Um, lot, I'm, I'm really excited, man. I'm really excited. So let me ask you something, dude. What was it that made you go from a hobby collection into a breeding collection? Like, what was, was it something that gradually happened? Or was it that one day you just kind of come to the realization, I can't do this at my house anymore? Like, when did it, when did that transition well, occur? So I've, I've always, I've always kind of ran it more as a business than, than just a hobby. Like, I mean, almost since day one. And it's more been like a, like a, like a supporting business to life. And, but it's always been my passion, man. It's always been just, I, I love the animals. I love working with the animals. I work with a ton of different species. And, and there's just one point where I'm like, hey, I think this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I think, you know, it's not always about money. It's not always about, you know, it's not always about like everybody's picture perfect of, you know, picture of what a perfect life is. My vision was working with animals, bro. And so, and I also really like, the, the the people relationships that I developed in this industry do there's a ton of great people that I deal with and just over the years of just watching everybody else kind of go no not not everybody's got their own path right but I, I see people maybe not following their dreams not doing what they wanted to do and I was like you know what I, I'm just I want to I want to do reptiles for a living man I want I, I think that's what I'm called to do in life I think that's me so I just I just dove in both feet man that's awesome dude so when um, when you started making that, that decision to kind of dive both feet, obviously, uh, like many of us, there's probably some people that kind of gave you some tips, maybe inspired you, maybe even mentored you along the way. Who are those people oh, that you looked up to when you were kind of getting started in this? There, there, there's a few people I really got to attribute my, my, you know, what, what I learned and the, the direction that I took because I think one of the biggest things that people make a mistake on is just not having any focus. I mean, I still don't have any focus, bro. <laughs> I have so much stuff. Professional ADD. I'll tell you what, dude, it's 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 a real thing, bro. So Randy Wright, right off the gate. So since that day that I bought those um, that group of king snakes from him, he always had my back. I'd go over to his house and I'd help him clean his his reptile room, and he'd pay me in snakes and. You know, I'd buy stuff from him and take him and, you know, go sell him to local pet stores and just, you know, run my little hustle that I thought I was doing when I was a kid. 
That's we're talking dope. from like nice. We're talking like 16, 17 years old. Randy always, but he would you know teach me how to breed, teach me how to take care of the animals, teach me his like little tips and tricks that he learned over the years. And then, and then as I got older, I started really getting into boas. And so I was I was buying some boas, and it's funny. I'll I'll bring up a couple names. So I was uh, at Guy Clark's place. So oh, yeah. I met. Yeah. I met Guy Clark at a show, and he says, "Hey, you know, you seem like a like a like a nice kid." He goes, "I got a lot of cool stuff. Why don't you come on down to the facility?" And I know he he was he probably knew I wasn't going to come by much, but he was just he was just a really good dude. And so it's funny. So I go there, and I'm there, and I uh, and you know who else is there that same day is Richard Sinisteros and his dad. Oh, Richard! And so nice. And we're and we're probably. Dude, we're probably 16 or 17. Me and Rich are about the same age. Yeah. And we're probably 16 or 17. Him and his dad were there buying some boas. And I ended up chatting with Rich. I ended up buying some of his albino Nelson eye from him. <laughs> and uh, But Guy Clark took me under his wing, bro. And he, uh, he taught me a lot about business. He taught me a lot about direction in life. He taught me a lot of just about the animals, bro, about, you know, having, having a future vision of the projects, about setting goals and following them, about, I mean, just... It's unlimited the amount of stuff that he taught me, and and really even today I still talk to the guy all the time. He's a good friend of mine, and he's still constantly giving me great advice. And I just I can't uh, can't say thank you enough to him for everything that he's done and giving me guidance too, because it's uh this it's been quite a bit. <laughs> That's awesome, man. For those of you don't that don't know Guy Clark, his uh his the name of his company is Western Herpetological Enterprise. Uh, Western Herpetological Research Institute. Yep. And um, he does mostly boas, but he also does some assorted pythons, blackheads, wilmas, and golans, and a bunch of other sort of colubrids. Just a good dude. Check him out for sure. Oh yeah, hundred percent, man. So let's talk about kind of what you're doing, uh, what you're doing currently, and uh, maybe some of your focuses. So, uh, and then go ahead and kind of give us what are you know your primary project focuses within boas and with balls to it. And whatever else okay, okay. you want to kind of chat about, stuff that's got you excited right now. Well, I'll, I'll say the first thing that's really got me excited is VPI blood combos. I haven't I haven't hit one yet, and I had some some uh, unfortunate luck a couple of years, but hey, it'll come soon enough. But I made some really cool combos in within that gene, and uh, I've got some cool pairings coming on the pipe for that stuff. So. One of the things that I'm really looking forward to, I'm hoping to hit it this year, is uh, is making um, VPI IMG bloods. And I've got a couple of pairings that I might have a shot at making some of those at. And um, that's one of the things that I'm really excited for. Has um, anybody has anybody made those yet? No, they haven't been made yet. What do and you think it's going to look a, like? Ah, man, so if you take... So I've seen a couple of VPI bloods. Yeah. And... And so there, there's a really wide variety in how those look. I've probably seen a, a good assortment of them. Like I've seen some over in Europe. I've seen some here. So if I were to imagine just based on the lineage that I'm working with and what my bloods and my IMGs and my VPI stuff that I have infused knew what it looks like, I'd have to say that I think they're going to be kind of a reddish purple color. So I think they're, I think the IMG color might be more of a purpley color, like that dark pigment might turn a purplish, like a dark, right. dark saturated purplish. And then the, uh, and then you obviously you've got blood in there, so you'd have a red background. So I'm thinking they're gonna be like reddish purple background. That's gonna be like, pretty uh, badass, yeah. What, what I'm kind of imagining, we were talking about this with Tyler last week, is that you know different IMG uh, lines tend to have kind of produce different levels of IMG. 
kind of mixed in well and and so so and on that topic yeah i'm trying to do two completely different lines i'm trying to do one that's just not as dark at all to see if that allows more contrast yeah but that's kind of what I'm the, the ones that i'm currently having the the ones i'm currently having the best luck with with it they're like they're definitely dark <laughs> they're really black so i guess we'll just see what happens i think we might have to add a couple other jeans to get some contrast well, let me tell you what would probably be really badass if you guys are able to pull that off and then you wind up with a black boa with a red background. <sighs> Dude, oh, that'd be, be insane. Might as well call it the Red Devil at that point. <laughs> yeah, Red Devil. See, and there's and there's so many cool combos in that project. Like, I'm thinking Aztec IMG blood combos. <gasps> Hypo jungle Aztec IMG blood combos. Add VPI. You know what I mean? Take away VPI. Like, I mean, there's just... It's, it's, um, it's, it's unlimited. There's so much potential for some of those projects and you know there's people some people that say that vpi is saturated and yeah, maybe maybe there is a lot of vpis out there but there's not a, there's not a lot of people that have really good quality vpis that's so i, I think that's what's going to separate it facts i think that's yeah for sure i think that's what's going to end up separating the the, the run-of-the-mill like hey this is just your average pink panther from i've got a you know red panther sun glow jungle ing blood and just like Tom was saying in his in his podcast that he's working on the Red Rum side of that. So he's got his direction. I'm trying to go with the Red Panther side of it. And we know then we can compare notes and probably, probably do some trades or something. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, regardless, it's going to be probably, you know, some of the coolest stuff that we've yet seen. And, you know, while the VPI BOA market might be a little bit saturated, I honestly don't think it's any more saturated than, say, the sharp market was five, six years ago when everybody wanted sharp bows, right? When they were making that transition. Uh, from, yeah, from call to sharp. From call to sharp, right? So yeah. I, I think I think well, there's we still haven't investigated the whole the whole thing. Yeah, no, it comes in waves. It comes in waves, man. I think that uh, I think that the the VPI wave is probably at the top of its peak. And there's going to be a lot of really killer stuff that comes down the pipe from from a lot of these VPI pairings that I see coming down. Like, there's just so many cool combos that are coming that we haven't even seen yet. I mean, there's a lot of genes that haven't been experimented with. Like, how many, you know, visual laggy VPI combos do you see? I mean, it just there's so many VPI combos to be had still that I don't think that it's going to die down anytime soon. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and just imagine once... once uh... You know, we start introducing the pied gene into this whole game. Oh, it's, game over. Going then, yeah, it's just, it's gonna it's gonna. I'm really hoping that that some of that pied stuff comes to light and we get some some in the hobby because I think it'll really give boas that next level of care. You know, of keeping that ball pythons already have. Ball pythons already have some really crazy combos that boas haven't even you know caught up to yet. And I think that that I think the the pied and a couple, you know, flabbies and some of these, you know, black-eyed and blue-eyed combos that I think might be potential, you know, good killer combos for both for the boa scene later. I think that when those start coming to the forefront, I think it's going to bring a new level of keepers. And I bet you a lot of ball python guys start keeping more boas. <laughs> oh no, I agree one hundred percent, dude. Now speaking of boat of uh, ball pythons, dude, uh, I know you work with a lot of ball pythons. Any anything? Uh... Anything in particular that's got you focused, ball python wise, right now? Yeah, so so I've got so I've got a couple of cool projects that I'm really stoked about. So one of them, 
I'm, I'm digging BPI Xanthic stuff quite a bit. And, and it kind of translates to Boas too, because I really like BPI Snow Combo stuff. So it kind of, you know, kind of goes back and forth, kind of, the you know, kind of goes hand in hand. But I've got some BPI Puzzle Combo stuff that I'm working on. Um, and then I've got some, uh, you know, some Super Pastel Orange and Highways that we just made recently. We've got a lot of, a uh, lot of cool clown combos that are coming down the pipe, like, like Champagne Calico Clown pastel yellow belly combos that you know haven't really been seen yet so you know we got a lot of ball pythons and you know one of the things that i uh we're doing a lot of at the the shop is is blitz combos so a lot of people are following you know trick or you know i think i think blitz and trick are very similar in my opinion and there's a lot of trick stuff that's going into some of these new you know confusion spot nose yellow belly clown combo stuff i think that blitz is going to be the same thing but we've already proven that super blitzes are viable and killer and breed well and do good. So they actually they actually came from Europe originally, and the the name for super blitz is actually a blitzrig. <laughs> okay. And um, yeah, so it's it's they've been around for a really long time, and um, and we picked up uh, some ball pythons from Susan Hardy, who had some of the original blitzrig stuff that came in from Europe. And that stuff's killer, man. I mean, the pa- it does a ton of stuff to pattern. It does a ton of stuff to color. We made some um, some super blitz banana yellow belly combos that were just super blitz cinnamon banana yellow belly combos that were just insane, bro. Looking like uh, hurricane stuff quite a bit. <laughs> it makes me question, you know, like I wonder if they're a lilac with hurricane because they're very similar in what some of the super stuff does. And and to my knowledge i don't think anybody's ever mixed them so no i I don't think it has been done it's it's something that i'm considering myself down the road but i think what will end up happening is somebody will breed because we already know the trick and blitz or or allelic so i think what's going to happen is somebody will probably use trick first since it's been around a lot longer in the states than blitz has so i think somebody will end up using trick to breed into some you know some some clown hurricane combo and end up making something that's allelic and going oh look but who knows? <laughs> nice man. Ball pythons are another beast with uh, with all the genetics that are out there, man. There's so many projects. But yeah, so and I, I'm really digging puzzle combo stuff. I really like puzzles. Um, it's just it's it's a recessive. It's it's different than everything else. It's kind of leopardy-ish, but it's not a codom. So it's not going to be as easy for people to make you know a slew of morphs too quickly so i think it's going to have some longevity in the game and i've seen some killer puzzle stuff and it just it, that's got me excited so the first thing that we did is uh me and a buddy of mine um dominic Calafamo, he had a bunch of puzzle stuff and we just you know we, we did a project together where we ended up making some double head exantic puzzle combos we made some sulfur double head exantic combos some pastels and some pastel pins and some pastel spiders and some pins and we kept pretty much all that stuff back. It's all getting good size on it. And I think that, uh, you know, it won't be too long before we're hitting exantic puzzle combos here. Yeah, no, that's going to be pretty badass, man, because I, I haven't seen very many of those, if any of those, out there in the marketplace. I mean, yeah. I'm a little bit in the puzzle game too, man. But Yeah, yeah there's there's not, a, there's not a ton of puzzle stuff out there. Yeah, no, it's I mean, still... there's, you know, some super vanillas. There's some, you know, there's some assorted, uh, you know, Odds and ends that, are, that people have made, but a There's lot of people. There's some puzzle stuff, but double recessive. Yeah. Double recessive stuff is pretty much non-existent right now. Right. Exactly. So that's that's kind of. I'm gonna go that direction, and then I'd like to. Um, 
another another project that I really like is um, Xanthic Highway stuff. So I'm working on like some some like pastel orange dream leopard Xanthic Highway combos. Hmm. Is the the other project that I'm I'm really excited about. I'm I'm hoping to hit like a like a pastel orange and yellow belly leopard highway. And is, it, is there a, any particular Xanthic line that you guys are focusing on? VPI. VPI all the way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. A lot of people, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, Jolie for Snake Keeper. I even have some jungle stuff, some jungle Xanthic. But I just, for the quality that I've seen, VPI is the way to go, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, no, for sure, man. So um, are, are, do you have uh, any other uh, reptiles that you're kind of uh, looking forward to this upcoming season? You know, just give us yeah, an overall so, season update of different So, so, so some, of the, some of the bigger projects that we have. So I've got, I've got a ton of boa projects coming down the pipe. I've got some cool ball python projects coming down the pipe. But the, some of the other notable things that I'm really excited about, black-headed pythons. We work with blackheads. Um, we've got some really killer western lineage stuff that's uh, I'm hoping to get some production from this year um and then i do uh, i've been doing false water cobras for about i think this will be my 12th or 13th year in production this year and i've got all kinds of cool false water cobra stuff i've got u.s super hypos i've got uk hypo stuff i've got lavender stuff and that and it's it's something that's got me excited i've got a lot of false water cobras and i really enjoy them and then um I do some dry mark on, so I, you know, I, I work with some Kribos and Indigos and stuff. Those are those are always a blast for me. They're kind of in the same grouping as my Cobras. I have them all in the same setup, the same racks, and uh, and I really enjoy all of all of uh, all the big Colubrids. They're pretty rad. And then I and then I also have some really cool small Colubrid projects. I do um, you know I do an assortment of like like rarer locality. Like pyros, I'm sure you're familiar with pyros living in Flagstaff. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got some like I've got some cool locality stuff, some Cape Creek, Arizona locality pyros that are kind of like borderline the block eye. And then I've got some uh, that's probably my favorite pyro locale. And then I've got some other cool ones like you know some applicate hypo stuff, some Patagonias, some albino Ruth and I. I've got uh, I've got some calking combos, some blacking combos, and we have you know we do corn snakes too. So I've got scaleless and palmetto corn snakes. So I do <laughs> I do quite a bit, almost too much sometimes. <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. You know, funny you say that because uh, my two oldest kids right now are actually out herping behind the house looking for some pyros. They're hoping to. <laughs> that's find awesome, them. dude. Because right now it's kind of that time. You know, the snows are just started going away. And it's yeah, they'll start coming sun. out trying they'll to ca- trying to catch some sun on a rock out there. Yeah, dude, that's yeah. I, I I you know I love pyros. They're probably probably one of my favorite king snakes of all time. I just I've always had an affinity for pyros, and um, I've you know I've kept a bunch of different localities. I have Patagonias. I've you know Shirakawas, Cave Creeks is probably my favorite, but I've got a bunch of you know a bunch of cool pyros. I really enjoy them. No, that's awesome, dude. So. Um let's kind of go back to talking uh, a little bit of business so tell me about some of the lessons learned when you established uh, your reptile business and maybe some of the lessons learned now that you've established a retail shop so man there's a there's a lot of lessons to be learned bro a lot of hard knocks but I'll, but I'll, I'll tell you some of the some of the key ones are make goals and focus man I think I think a lot of people it happens if you know you get you get you know if you're passionate about the animals you get in this groove where you want a little bit of everything. You can't figure out what direction you want to go. And I, I just say, you know, follow your passion, follow what you what you like, and and set some goals and follow through with them. Because if you don't, you're never going to accomplish anything. And I, 
find that hard for myself to, to live by those rules even today because I, I want to do it all. I love all the animals, bro. I want to do Trimarchon. I want to do Blackheads. I want to do Puffin all of Pythons. <laughs> you know, and, I want, and, and sometimes I got to, you know, step back a little bit and just focus on what I'm good at and what I, what I, what I like to do the most. And, and focus is one of the biggest things. Um, the retail shop brought a whole, you know, separate set of challenges, which is now you've got a, you know, you've got a face with the public. You've got marketing. You've got, you know, not only marketing online, but marketing locally. So you get walk-in traffic. You've got to represent yourself as a, you know, as a retail location. So you've got, you know, hours of operations and employees, and it's a whole, a whole another gamut of challenges. But it's really rewarding, man. I, you know, one of the things that I've always been really into that kind of pertains to this as well as education. Like I go to the schools. Oh, that's I, cool. you know, I do. I like I do for free too. Like a lot of people charge. I do for free. I go to the schools. I do demonstrations in classrooms. I try to educate the kids. You know, that's our future generation of herpers and customers. For sure. And and without them, we don't, there is no future. So I, I always try to focus on like what's going to drive our business. What's going to be healthy and responsible for the customers, for myself, for the business, for the employees. And there's the, the challenges that come with that are, are a lot of times just you know, dealing with the customers and, you know, running a legitimate retail business, you know, all your, all of our employees are on the books, you know, workman's compensation, business, you know, business licensing, all that stuff, you know, doing everything on the up and up can be challenging, man. No, that, that's definitely, that's definitely true, dude. And I know one of the things that's probably one of the more challenging things that you're currently doing that a lot of people have been curious about is the fact that uh, you do a little bit of international business. You uh, you go overseas to do business. You do exporting. You import stuff. Tell me what that's like and maybe some of the challenges associated with that type of work. It's, that's, it's, it's definitely also challenging, man. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of... Um, there's a, there's a lot of things like for instance right out the gate you got a lot of customers and let's say it's in China they don't speak English <laughs> you know what I mean it's it's hard to do business sometimes I don't speak Mandarin you know what I mean so so we ship um, pretty much all over the globe and and it's great I really enjoy dealing with people from all walks of life I, I learn about their culture I develop friends in all these other countries and you know so like especially when I travel to these other countries, like I go out to the ham show and see all these people that I've been dealing with for years overseas and see all their animals and how they do things. It's a, it's a different world, bro. It's uh, it's so far removed from how we do our, our business here and how we conduct reptiles as a whole here. It's a different world over there, man. And you know, you've got, you know, fish and wildlife and CITES permits and, you know, freight forwarding agents and export docs and import docs and declarations and, you know, you know, veterinary inspections and health certificates and, you know, United States Department of Agriculture inspections. And then you have to have your facility open for these agencies to inspect and come make sure that the parental stocks held housed there. And it's just, man, it's, it's, there's so much that goes into it that it's, it can be, it can be time consuming, man. It can consume a lot of your energy and a lot of your time just doing the export stuff. So, and you know, I, I would say if it was easy, everybody would probably do it. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely difficult, but it can be rewarding, man. I've got some of the coolest animals and met some of the coolest people just importing and exporting and doing some of these, you know, international shows and stuff. It's uh, it's definitely fun, man. And it's, uh, I really enjoy it. Is but, that a particular uh, show that's your favorite? The, the ham show in Germany is probably the biggest show in the world. And so I fly out there to go to ham and it is, it's incredible. And, 
it's crazy because they don't really take care of their vendors that great. Like the, like the vendors are like back to back, bumping asses, like no space in the building, and you can't even freaking walk in this place. I mean, you walk in the building and there's you know thirty thousand people shoulder to shoulder, like trying to move through this room, and you can't even stop to do a sale half the time because the the traffic is pushing you down the aisle way. And the aisleways are like a hundred feet long. The vendors can't come in between their booth and get out because they just put two tables like back to back all the way down. So in order for a vendor to like come around the booth, he's got to like go through ten other people's booths just to get to the end of his aisle. It's it's crazy, but um, but there's so much stuff that they have there that we don't have. Like you see big old Fiji and iguanas on display, and you'll see a bunch of you know Taliqua like you know. You know, like Taliqua will go to like big old pine cone shingleback skinks just chilling on display for sales. There's so much stuff you don't see here that they have there. It's it's uh, it's definitely different and, and fun. So one of the things that um, I, I think we've talked a little bit about in the past and we just kind of touched on it is the fact that obviously um, as globalization becomes a larger reality, we're going to have obviously new collect collector markets opening up to us now obviously we have the established markets within europe and within japan that have been going on with our have been growing with our hobby almost since the beginning right right Uh, right but um now we're seeing brand new markets like you alluded to like china opening up how do you think these new markets are going to affect the american reptile market you know it's funny because i've heard a lot of people talk about it skeptically and and what i'd say is that it's actually a really good thing if you have, so you got to imagine. So if we've got a market that's, you know, that's going strong, just just with what we're doing here, we're we're being self-sustainable. We produce our own animals. We sell our own animals here. And there's a broader market that needs to be supported. All that's going to do is strengthen our current market because that means there's more demand for the supply that we can't supply enough of. So when when China and South Korea and Thailand and Malaysia, when they start becoming players in the game and they start taking a large, you know, lion's share of demand from our market, all that's going to do is strengthen our market. And a lot of people are like, well, you know, then then they overproduce and sell the animals back and crash our market. And that's not the case. You know, I've been selling to, you know, like Colubers of Hong Kong by the thousands for years. And, and the reason that it doesn't crash our market is because they have such a larger market than we do. You gotta imagine, so the US has what, 360 million people? Yeah, about. And they've got two billion. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're literally, you know, what is that, six times larger than we are? And they don't even have production. So how long is it gonna be before they even have any kind of self-sustainability it's, it's, it's not going to happen. Then you add in the fact that you've got all these other, you know, all these other countries around the world that want what we have. It's, I think there's, it's going to be a never ending um, constraint on supply, which is really good for strengthening in our market here, in my opinion. No, hundred percent, man. So now that we've kind of touched on all these items, kind of let me know what is Michael Roscoe's kind of vision for the future of the hobby? So man, there's there's so, so there's so many good things about the future of the hobby, bro. I think the future is bright. Um, I think I think that like for me, I want to I want to build more relationships with people. I want to continue to produce you know world class awesome animals. I want to continue to you know really give um, insight to the kind of quality 
and the kind of dedication that it takes to make a product that other people can appreciate and enjoy. And I say product, a lot of people, you know, that, you know, they get weirded out by that term, animals, product. I mean, it's all, it's all in reference to something that you made and that you worked hard to make. Right. So I think that in, in the future, man, it's going to be just me focusing on my cool projects that I want to work with. It's going to be me working with a lot of the cool people that I've developed awesome relationships in the hobby. There's so many cool people, bro. And, and that's one of the things that's probably my favorite thing about the hobby is just, there's a ton of really awesome people that you learn and, you know, you guys share a passion and you can just, you know, jive about your animals and jive about, and, and a lot of it doesn't even become animals anymore. You end up becoming personal friends. You're talking about life and friends and family and kids and dogs. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of really cool people in the game, bro. And, uh, and that's, that's actually one of the things I'm most excited for is just, you know, meet new people and developing new relationships with people and learning about what their passions are and, you know, just talking and jiving and just, you know, just enjoying the hobby in general, man. Awesome, dude. So we're going to take a break real quick. Uh, when we come back, Mike, we're going to talk a little bit about reptile shows and kind of your experiences with it. All right. All right, for sure. Alright guys, we're back. So obviously with the recent news of the coronavirus, there's been a series of cancellations of a bunch of the reptile shows out there. Obviously while these times feel super uncertain, like everything else in life, you know this this will eventually pass and eventually reptile shows will return and business will be done at them. So one of the things that I've, I like to kind of bring up is if you're going to be good at anything or if you're going to be passionate about any type of enterprise, it's important to seek out those who are super knowledgeable and specifically those who do that particular thing the best. So within the West Coast, probably the most prolific reptile show vendor and probably the one that does it the best that I've seen just people rave about going to his table is you, Mike. So basically, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Man. Yeah, dude. So let's little bit. Let's talk about a, a little bit about what it's like to vend a show, and maybe give give a couple of tips uh, to somebody that's thinking of vending their their first show. Yeah, yeah. No, no problem, man. So I, I really enjoy the shows. It's it's a it's a forum where you can go out and and build rapport with your customers. You can, you know, get some face-to-face -face time with the people that you're chatting with on the phone, with the people that are, you know, are stoked to see a bunch of different animals you might have. And, you know, like somebody like me, I have a couple of different facilities. I have my personal stuff at home. So it's hard to go to the shop and get an idea of all the projects we're working on. So the show gives you a forum that it's, you can have all your eggs on the table. You can have every project, every animal, everything you want to bring all in one place. And get face-to-face -face time with the customers, man. And it's, I think it's, I think it's imperative. Sometimes they can be a little bit uh, a little bit hectic and a little busy, and you don't get the kind of time that you would like to get with some of your customers and some of your friends. But it's still a good place to get quality animals and see, uh, like, let's say you're like, hey, I want to get into boas. And I want to go check out a few different breeders' animals, see what they have in stock, you know, see the animals in person, see what you're, what you're thinking, what you're liking. It's a perfect place to go do that. And so I really made it, you know, since my first show when I was 15 years old, I've always known that I think that I'll do well if I do shows 
have good customer service, educate people. I mean, education at the shows is a big part of what we're trying to do. Teach people about the animals, about husbandry, about care, about genetics. And, um, and just, you know, show our passion. You know, you can't, you can't exude passion, um, you know, in, in an email. You know what I mean? Like, you can't, you can't show that you have, you know, love and passion for something or your hobby or your business in an email. So the conventions are really a way to just get face to face and show people and let people feel what you're feeling about the animals in, in, in person, dude. So, you know, the can't, you know, unfortunately with this virus on our hands, I think, I think our next five or six shows have already been canceled. Right. And I was bummed, man, because we don't, we really hit the show tough, hit the shows tough. And it's something that I look forward to. It's a big part of our revenue piece for our business. So it was, uh, it was definitely a big hit when they started canceling all the shows. But, um, you know, uh, of course, it's for the safety of me and everybody else is going to the shows. And I think it's the right thing to do, unfortunately. <laughs> but, uh, but they'll come back around, man. And, and I think that they, uh, I think it'll be in no time. We'll be back to having shows, and I think we'll be back to you know everybody jiving and having a good time and going to the auctions and you know just you know going back to normal as you know business previously was. But for now, it's uh, definitely going to be a little while until we do another show. I think that for us, I think our next big scheduled show is either going to be Long Beach or the Super Show, and those are kind of on the chopping block because those are in June. Right. And if this is still going heavy, then those shows may not happen. Yeah. Now, is there a particular show you like the best? Like, basically, what do you look for when you want to vent the show? What are the things that would differentiate one show from subpar show? show? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the promoters. So promoters. It, it, it's all about the way that they promote the shows, how they take care of their vendors, how they facilitate customers through the door, how they sell tickets, how they market, how they you know do they put billboards up. Are they doing, uh, you know, organic outreach with their vendors via social media? Are they doing ads? You know, so a lot of it's the vendor, man, or the the promoter. And then, and then two is the vendors get behind a specific show. So you have shows that are like like Repticon. I'm not going to knock on anybody, but Repticon shows. How many Repticon shows do you know reputable breeders do? Not very many. There's a couple of good ones. I hear Atlanta's good. I hear that the one in um well I know that the one here in Orange County California is a good show but that's because it's paired with another big uh, event called the uh, the what's it called the pet uh, the, Cal- the, the pet, pet expo. expo yeah right right so it's paired with the pet expo so there's a lot of people through the door it's an opportunity to bring new people that might be there for a bird show and convert them into loving reptiles just like you do so <clears throat> my favorite shows are going to be the super shows man. Romney Gurgis does a killer job putting those shows together. Absolutely. There's billboards all over the freeways. He promotes the crap out of them. And and there's one show that's really big, which is the, the January show. And that show's a little diluted just because you take the same amount of clientele base and you put them in the same, you know, you bring in the same amount of clientele base essentially, but you put it in a building that's 150,000 square feet with 700 vendor tables. So all that's doing is taking your potential customer base and diluting them against a bunch of other people that show up. But at the same time, it's a good opportunity to get exposure. It's a good opportunity to get your name out there. It's a good opportunity to put yourself in front of potential customers you may not have had previously. But I'd have to say my favorite shows are Pomona in August and San Diego in July. Hands down, those are both my two favorite shows. Um, San Diego's probably just because it's my hometown. 
It's where I did my first show at. You know, he still vends at the same location. Um, and uh, it's just it's nostalgic to me. So I go to that show and I feel like I'm in my element. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's, lo it's my most local show too. So it's closest to our shop. It's closest to our business. So <clears throat> that show is probably my favorite. Followed very closely by uh, Pomona in August. Yeah, no, for sure, man. So when, um, when you're setting up to vend at a show, talk a little bit about, you know, what constitutes like having a good setup, what constitutes good marketing prior to the show. Uh, and if maybe the location of where you're placed within the show itself is important. So I, I, those are, so location does play a factor. I think that if you have good quality animals and you stand behind your animals and you stand behind your booth and you're, you know, you're not, there's a lot of people that go to the show and they sit down, you know, in the chair behind their booth and cross their arms and mad dog people walking by, they're probably not going to have too many sales. But if, but if you're up, you're up there engaging and talking to the customers and, you know, being personable and being friendly and just, you know, being, being a good customer service person, I think you'll do well wherever you're putting the show. But I personally like to be somewhere halfway in the middle, kind of. That's just kind of where I've, I've always found a, a good, uh, happy medium is that it seems like people come in the door and don't impulse buy, but by the time they get to the middle, they're ready to talk business. And I, yeah, I, I, like, sure. I like that. And yeah. then as far as the preparation for a show goes, man, so organization is key there are so many moving parts in just any reptile business and then you compile that with you know orchestrating getting all of your guys together you know facilitating the animals and transport facilitating the animals at the show and after keeping your keeping everything organized having all your displays cleaned and i you know there's a lot that goes into it and i'd say if you know for somebody that's new that's coming in to go they want to go do their first show just be organized. Just keep your stuff organized and <clears throat> clean and just don't overwhelm yourself because it takes us a week to prepare for a show that's coming up. So when we have a show back to back, it's nonstop. You got to clean displays. You've got to quarantine animals after the show. You've got, you know, a lot of people just, you can't, you can't just go to a show and let, you know, 5,000 people handle animals. And they come back and put them back in your in your you know your your room that you've had animals in for a year that are in quarantine. You know you can't just mix stuff. So you know there's a lot of factors that come into play. We treat you know we, we try to preventatively treat the animals between shows. And I use like um like a natural um, treatment like a nature's chemistry. Right. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it's like yeah. an enzyme based. It's not, you know, it's not pesticide based. So we use like a natural treatment, but we treat the animals that come back from the show and then we quarantine them. And so it, there's a lot more than just kind of boxing up some animals and putting them on your table. It's, uh, you know, you got to have, you know, tablecloths. Are they clean? Do they fit the tables you're going to have? Do you have banners? Do you have supplies for, you know, for, for packaging the animals that you sell? You know, there's, there's a lot of things that go into it. How do you, how do you set up your displays? How do you market yourself? So I would just say, you know, just try to take your focus on organization, professionalism, cleanliness. That's, that's always going to win, man. It's going to win over the guy that brings, you know, a million things and just throws them on his table and organize and helps you make some sales. If you go to him and then you go to somebody that's, you know, taking the time to, organize all their animal, label them properly, care for them, clean the displays, you know, all the stuff that everybody should be doing. But that really makes a big difference. 100%. And just keeping yeah. things on, on track. Now, 
I remember the last show that I saw you at was, I think, uh, I think it was the Phoenix show. So during that show, obviously you brought in, uh, probably one of the highlights of the entire show, which was, uh, your boa with the TNS gene. So talk a little bit about the TNS gene and how that ended up kind of coming up. So the TNS gene is pretty funny, man. So it's, it's, it's actually a little bit of a long story. I'll try to shorten it up, <clears throat> but, um, so just right out the gate, TNS, <laughs> it just says, it just stands for the new shit because we can never come up with a name for it. And then I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd be talking to one of my buddies and be like, Hey, well, how's that? How's that new one doing? I was like, I want that, you know, and it just the new shit, bro. And, and that's maybe we'll come up with a name one day for it. Maybe this will stick. Who knows? But, um, so the, the background of this gene is back. I want to say. Man, it was probably back in 2004, 2005. Um, my buddy Mike Neely at Freak Show Reptiles picked up an import boa, just a pretty looking, good quality boa. And he picked it up at a pet shop here in Southern California. And right around that same time, um, from the importer himself, I had picked up a group of boas myself. And I was working part-time at a pet shop on the weekends, helping managing the reptile department um, on the side. So what... Uh, Long story short, what happened? He kept it. He bred it one year, and he was thinking that we were going to get these cool-looking boas out of it. And we got a couple of, we got a bunch of kind of normal-looking boas from this male that he had picked up at that store. And we were like, "Oh man, maybe it's not genetic. It just it was a really cool-looking boa. It almost looked like a clean hypo. It was just it was just it was different looking." So he so he uh, a couple of years later, I think it was like the next year actually, he ended up moving out of state to Colorado. He says, hey, man, you know, I'm not going to take my animals with me. You want to you take some of my animals because I'm moving? I was like, sure, sure. So I sold a couple of those import boas that I got right around the same time. He picked that one up. And I got one back that was pretty unique looking in itself. And I kept her. It was a female lady, just, you know, it was an owner. I had sold it to her. She kept it and then brought it back to the shop. And I was like, I want that back. That's cool. I That one came out really nice. So... He brings me these animals. I'm like, shit, I'm, I'm confined for space, man. I got to figure where to put this. So I was like, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's springtime. This is a male. It's a female here. I'm going to throw them in here. <laughs> so uh, I throw this pair of bows in together. And this is in probably, I was in probably 2009. And um, and I had had a, you know, pretty, pretty well-structured reptile room at my house, but it was pretty full. So I ended up putting these two bows together and I was going to make myself a couple of new cages to, to house these new animals. And they immediately went to work. I mean, right out the gate. They were they were locked from dang near the minute I put them in there. So Mike moves. I call him, you know, a few months later, 120 days. <laughs> right, right. I call Mike. He's like, hey, bro, we got a, we got a litter out of your mail, dude. <clears throat> and he's like, no way. That's cool, yada, yada, yada. He's like, if I ever, you know, save some, if I ever get back, I mean, maybe I want some babies from it. So I keep a couple of pairs of unique looking ones back. They had a weird look to them. They weren't. At the time, T-positive genes were not really the mainstream yet. This is like right around the inception of the VPI gene when it was starting to become out. So I wasn't sure what we were looking at here, but they were definitely interesting looking animals. So I kept back a couple of pairs. I ended up, you know, selling a, one of the pairs off as pets, like the lesser looking pair. Fast forward a couple of years, Mike. He's getting back in the game. He wants to, you know, get the itch. It's hard to stay away for too long. So he's like, hey, bro, I'm, I'm jumping back in the mix. You know, let's get some stuff. So him and I invested in a couple of projects. And I was like, hey, bro, I have this pair of babies from that, you know, from those adults from back in the day. You want to take this pair? Sure. So I sent him to Mike along with some other animals. 
And he had him for like five years. Bred him for three years in a row, didn't get anything. Um, and just, they were just kind of sitting there. So five years later, he had a couple of, uh, you know, personal life things that came around that I ended up buying a lot of his collection back from him. But it was in the middle of February. And my other, one of my other best friends is Mike's, me and Mike have been homies forever. So one of my other best friends, Jason Doan at Skull Crush and Exotics, had moved down to Colorado Springs. And him and I had had a couple of projects going. He was just getting into boas, had bought a rack, and was just kind of starting to get in the mix. He had a couple of call animals. And so I called Jason. I was like, hey, man, Mike's got some circumstances, and he's uh, he needs to lighten his load over there a little bit. Took on a new job. You know, he, he can't care for everything, so he wants me to grab some stuff. But it's February in Denver. You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> we can't exactly ship them. I said, would you be game to go pick this stuff up and hold on to it until the spring? Until it warms up and you can ship me. And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem, dude. So Jason drives down to Mike's, picks up these animals, takes them home, sets them up. And he's like, dude, some of these things look like they want to they wanna cycle. And I was like, really? So this is like March. And I want to say this is three or four years ago. So these animals are like, bro, these animals are like eight years old at this point and still virgins. I'm like, ah, oh, these things aren't going to go. <laughs> and he was like, hey, do you want me to get rid of anything? There's a couple of doubles of animals, and I was like, yeah, let's, you know, let's maybe sell this one. We'll keep this. And so Jason sets up all these animals, and he's like, what do you want me to do with these two weird-looking boas? And I was like, oh, man, that's my project. I was like, well, I want you to just throw them together. So he does. And he also throws together some other, you know, we had some VPI stuff, some VPI snow stuff. So we threw together a couple of pairs. And so fast forward you know a couple of months he calls me hey bro you know we got a litter we made some vpi snows cool about a week later he calls me and goes hey man we dropped that litter and we got some we got some deposits out of it and i'm like you're like wait what wait <laughs> that litter already dropped well i was like wait a minute the, the the vpi litter already dropped what are you talking about he's like yeah those two weird boas and, and dude I, I literally was like what are you talking about jason he's like bro the two weird looking boas, you told me you didn't care if I paired them or not. I just got a litter and I got these weird T positive looking things out of it. And bro, and it clicked. I was like, you're fucking kidding me. No, I said, Get, send me some pictures. So he sends me pictures. So out of, uh, there's a few stills. I think it was like 20 babies-ish. Right. And we got a few visuals, bro. And I was like, and, and they're legitimate T positives. I'm like, so that male was a T or a het T? And this pair just proved. So we, you know, we were we were dumbfounded. I didn't think anything would have ever come of it. Kind of pushed it by the wayside. Didn't think much of it. And uh, so there was a litter. And so I called Mike and I was like, "Bro, you're never gonna believe what happened." I said, "We had a litter from that original male that you dropped off at my fucking place, and we made T positive bows." And he's like, "You're shitting me." So I gave Mike some. Jason kept some and I kept some. So now we're all in the project together and we're all going to work on a different aspect of the project. So I figured, you know, it was only right to, you know, keep us all in the game, bro. Like it's, it's one of those fluke things that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. So, so Mike's got some visuals and then, then, so skip two years, we made another litter, had the same, same uh, amount of heads come out. We made, you know, like 25% heads came out of the same pairing two years later. And we're actually, they may be grabbing right now, actually, for a third time. 
And so now we're all working on outcrossing. So we all have a, you all, we all have some visual tees from the project. I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work on one part of the project. Jason's going to work on one part of the project and Mike's going to work on one part of the project. So I'm going to run, you know, some like blood IMG combo stuff to mine. Jason's going to run um, some Annery and um, some ghost stuff to his. And Mike's going to run some like multi-gene codon to his. And we're just going to see where it goes, man. I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's, 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 so it's, it's funny because it's not related to anything that's out there. It looks completely different to everything that's out there. Looks totally different, dude. Yeah. And it's and it's and I know the original lineage is from two wild caught animals from an importer. And you know, the pet shop that Mike Neely bought the original mail from, my buddy owned. So when he picked up that animal and brought it down, I was like, Hey dude, check this thing out. I called my buddy Tim, I was like, Hey bro, where did you get that boa at? He's like, Oh, I imported it I brought it as an import from Calzoo. And Kalazoo, for you, you know, for those of you who don't know, it's a California zoological supply. They are based in California, and they're a, they're an importer reseller. They sell to a lot of mom, mom and pop shops. They've been around for like forty years, and um, and so that's where my, you know, the same year in the same import, my female came in. That's where that my original group of imports came from. So now we've got, you know, we've we've got two confirming litters of they're legitimately T positives. And I think this year we're going to do um, some good outcrossing and try to strengthen the lineage and then take some of those outcross unrelated heads from me and Jason and, you know, and Mike and, and you know, we're all going to mix them up so that we were doing the most diverse outcrossing we can to keep the genetics strong. And then probably the next cycle will be making visuals from the heads that we're producing this year. Yeah. So, for those that have never had a chance to see the TNS gene, um, it's completely different to anything that's out there. So, I, I fancy myself like pretty knowledgeable about some of the stranger T uh, plus uh, uh, genes that are out there, whether it be like the desert stuff, the Russian blondes, things of that nature. And I remember the first time I visited your facility that you, you were like, hey, bro, check this out real quick. And you opened up the drawer. <laughs> I didn't know what the hell I was looking at at that point. I just see, see this super bright baby that's like a buckskin color. Um, describe the snake a little bit for those that have never had a chance to see it and maybe talk a little bit about how the color's been changing as it's been growing. Well, so, so man, so there's a couple of things that are going on with these. So one of the babies has like a really red purpley tail and like this, this buckskin, like you said, like, like a light blonde tea positive bone caramelish almost looking um, color on the top. And then we, we made some that, so the original babies we produced um, had like a circle back Roswell looking look to them. They had a real circle backy. And so Mike, Mike Neely has a female that straight looks like a Roswell, in my opinion. I mean, it's, it's, it's like circle back ladder tail looking to the max. And that thing's like purplish color. It's, it doesn't look anything like the one that I have or like the one that Jason has. Really? And then the one I, yeah, it's, it's, I'll have to send you some pictures or maybe I'll upload some pictures somewhere like on my, uh, on my social media for people to take a look at some of the comparisons because the three adults that we have now that are now two years old, two and a half years old, they look nothing alike. Not one of them. And then last year's babies are kind I have one that's really light, one that's really contrasty. And then, there's another one that's real, um, 
real like uh, in the middle. So it's 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 kind of weird. They definitely there's some variation going on, but they but they have a base color that's unlike any other T positive that I've seen. It doesn't look like a central. It doesn't look like a BWC. It doesn't look like a VPI. It doesn't look like a paradigm. It's 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 its own color. It's its own color skew, and I would almost describe it as. Maybe like the color of a Polkalpa Peruvian boa. <laughs> oh yeah, no, like and, dead on, it's like a buckskin like cream color. It's just, yeah, it's like a buckskin cream. Just it's 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 real dark and real intense, and uh, it's got these like brown purplish highlights, and you know all the darker pigment is like purplish and brownish looking, and, and they're uh, they're really def definitely different. They're cool. Honestly, the the closest thing I could probably describe it to is remember uh, about two years ago there was that wild caught T positive that. Uh, some video emerged yeah that Walcott T positive in Peru that's yeah. funny I was looking for that video to show a friend of mine that yesterday and I couldn't find it yeah and I can't but, find that video but that's about the closest in color that I've seen of it to anything I, I, I agree and so the, the the origin of the import that came in originally was from Colombia but when they when they were importing from Colombia they were importing from all over the region I mean, we're talking, they were importing from the farthest north and the farthest south. So there was no, they would just collect from farms who would go out, find big females. They would house them in like outdoor enclosures. And when they drop litters, they collect the babies, feed the females and then let them go. And then around springtime again, they'd go collect females, let them drop their litters. And then they're, they're off after it again. So, you know, it, these two imports that we got could have been from totally different localities. Oh, and it's hundred percent possible. So I'll tell and, you and that part of might be Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. So I actually grew up down in Ecuador, right? And one of the things right. that they would do is uh, a lot of uh, the native Ecuadorian uh, tribesmen would kind of comb around the Amazon, ranging from like the border all the way down to maybe even as far south as like Inquitos, right, in Peru. Right, right, right. like down and, into Peru. Yeah, and they what they would do is they would catch random reptiles and they would actually bring them up to the city and sell them door to door. So oh, really? it was, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me that, you know, stuff that maybe gets exported out of Colombia maybe originates as far south down as, you know, Peru and parts of uh, Brazil and parts of Ecuador. But yet it's all being distributed out of Colombia because I think like the trade down there has been established. And mind you, when I saw this, this is like in the 80s, dude. So, you know, it's right. only going to get more elaborate as time goes on. And more yeah, no, no doubt there's... Right, especially as um, you know, transportation's enhanced, <clears throat> and they, you know, they don't really know borders like we do here. They're just, you know, if you're in the middle of the rainforest, you're not going to. Oh, I, I think I'm in Peru. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't there, work like that. There's no line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So awesome, man. So let me ask you. Yeah, that's cra are, that's crazy, man. Yeah. So. so yeah. So what's one of your plan? What are your plans with this gene for the future? I know you guys are still kind of figuring out and exploring it, but really what would you like to do or what are you hoping to do with the gene itself? So what I'd like to do is to isolate some of these differences in the color that I see between the babies that we're producing and, and kind of go one direction with it. The really, so like, like the one that Jason has, has a purple tail and a buckskin top. <clears throat> the one that I have is like this creamy, color all the way across and the one that Mike has is mostly purple 
and it's got more Roswell ladder tail lookingish to it. So I just kind of like to figure out what's going on with everything there, isolate some of these individual nuances in the gene, and and kind of go from there and see, you know, try to enhance on what we like of the project, and then add what we think would be complementary. So if we think a good direction to go is, you know, adding, you know, type one anery and and hypo, then you know we'll probably run one to a ghost, and I think that's. The direction to Jason's going to plan on this year is actually pairing a visual male with that purple tail to a ghost female. And we've proven the female, it's a really killer female ghost, came from me. And it's, we've proven it to be het for nothing. So it's a good start, just, you know, just good, you know, good um, baseline, good quality animals, good quality lineage. It's, uh, it's from some ghost lineage that I've had for a really long time. And, uh, and I think it's a probably a good start for sure. Awesome. And then Mike Neely's going to run it to a couple of multi-gene combos. And then I'm probably going to run mine, to be honest. I'm trying to <clears throat> prove a couple of animals, head or not head, on my side. I'm thinking I'm going to run my mail probably in Aztec. Ooh. Just see, you know, just make some good quality Aztec heads. And, and then I'd like to run into some Roswell stuff down the road. I have, I have an affinity for Roswell. And one of the things that we haven't talked about is like the, some of the genes that we like in, in, in the hobby and some of them are our favorite or worst stuff. But I'll tell you, I think Roswell's underrated. And I'd like to run into some Roswell stuff down the road. 100%, man. 100%. Actually, uh, you know what's funny? I'm actually, as I sit here uh, doing this podcast, I'm sitting next to a uh, VPI ghost boa that's being bred by a, uh, that I got from you actually, a ghost jungle, um, that I'm actually bringing nice. to, uh, uh, nice. Roswell. So head annery. So let's see how that comes oh. out. That, well, that <laughs> that's see, so you're going down the right, down the same track. I'd like to take our project. That, yeah, that's man. exactly the direction I'd like to go. So I'm, I'm a jungle, I'm a jungle nut. I always love jungle. So I'll probably add a bunch of jungle. Into it. Dude, that's the way, man. <laughs> yep. All right, man. So we're going to yeah, take a break sure, real man. quick. For sure. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do the Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen. All right, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the Dirty Dozen. I'm going to ask you 12 questions. You're going to give me 12 answers. You can be as short with your answers or as long-winded as you want to be with your answers. But we need 12 responses. All right. Number All right, one. Cool. What is the current size of your collection? <sighs> That's a good <laughs> question, bro. I I honestly don't have a true answer because I really don't know, but it's it's well over a thousand animals at this point. All right, let's let, let's just say and your, pers- your personal your personal collection. All that, my personal collection is probably two hundred animals. All right, cool. All right, man. Number two, this is a husbandry related collection. This is just pertaining to boas. Uh, are you a frozen thought or a live guy? And what's your betting choice? So I actually like to feed the babies live for the first uh, first few months, I'd say. Get them started. I, for whatever reason, I seem to have a better response from the babies that get live than get frozen. The babies seem to be a little bit complacent when you get them frozen right out the gate. So I usually do my first like five to ten meals live and then convert them over to frozen. And then, uh, and then I feed my sub-adults and adults frozen. And then as far as bedding goes, so I the, so most babies I either keep on paper or aspen and the adults i primarily keep on aspen and then i sometimes for like because i do some locality stuff as well i use cypress mulch for some of the locality stuff nice 
All right, man. Number three, what's your favorite morpher locality? Okay, so so the the short short answer, all of them. <laughs> but uh, but specifically, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That. I mean, that's really the short answer. But specifically, I'm really digging dpi blood stuff man i can't lie there's something about it that just has got me and i plan on pursuing that more and hands down my favorite localities are lanchicada it's just something i've always loved and had an affinity for i've got a bunch of lanchicada and i just i can't get enough of them all right number four what is the most overrated boa morph Man, you know, I, I'd say I don't think there's a boa morph that's overrated. I think all the morphs have a place in the hobby. Um, everybody has different tastes and different likes, and, and I think that there's going to be a place for everything. But I will kind of kind of call out something. I think that the granite gene is probably overrated at 50 grand, considering the dude won't even tell anybody the genetics behind it. <laughs> I remember that. And and it's a, and, and he was trying to hawk those on Kingsnake a, a couple years ago. Yeah, and I mean, it's got great potential. It's a, it's a killer-looking animal. But he won't even tell anybody if it's like simple recessive or co-dominant. And so how are you going to spend 50 grand on an animal that you don't even know even the, the fondest extent of what the genetics are? So I think that for the price and for what he's trying to do with that, that's probably my opinion on the most overrated gene. All right, man. Number five. What is the most underrated gene in the? So there's 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 three there's three genes that I think that are probably the most underrated in my opinion, and and those are the three that I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna name them. So I think raptors are probably pretty underrated, and the reason is because there's so much convolution and drama surrounding it with all the different lineages and origin and this guy started it. No, this guy started it. But but in all reality. Super Raptors are viable, and they're really badass. Um, the other two would be Fires and Roswells. I think there's a lot of stuff to be done with Fire Gene. I think that passing it by for projects where it could be a good quality highlighter gene instead of just a white snake producer. And, and I think that once people start doing some more groundwork and putting in more Fire stuff in their combos, I think it's going to come full circle, and it's going to be a lot more desirable again. And then, and then Roswells. Just Super Roswells are viable. They're pretty rad-looking. And it's a it's a codom that had the super form that's viable that's not being that's not being used to its full potential. I think there's a lot of other combos like we've seen a little bit with the uh, the jigsaw stuff. I mean, bro, imagine if you could replicate jigsaws on a on a predictable basis. You know, it's game over. So I think Roswell is probably one of the ones on my list that's probably the most underrated. Awesome, man. Number six. What's your favorite part of the hobby? uh animals bro <laughs> animals and then and then honestly a close number two is going to be the people dude there's a lot of really killer relationships with people that i i consider like family now bro that in this hobby that you know i've, I've learned and came with along the way and and um you know people like and they're, and they're not all even boa people dude it's just people in general people that share a passion like when you share a passion with somebody about the same thing you guys can have in-depth awesome good genuine conversation about it it's it's there's you know there's not something there's something to be said for the kind of relationship you build with somebody when you guys have just such a strong bond over something that's common right and 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 because i'm passionate about the animals i become passionate about the people that are surrounding them too so i think the animals and the people bro all right man number seven what's the worst part of the hobby 
know-it-alls. <laughs> know-it-alls, hands down, dude. You know, I'm, 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 I learn stuff from people every day, bro. It doesn't matter if it's the, you know, the 16-year-old kid that did his research and learned something that I may not have known, or if it's, you know, the the experienced 25-year vet that you learned a new trick from. I, I learn every day from all people of all walks of life. And these people that think that they have all the answers and they know everything there is to know, I mean, that's that's when you stop evolving, man. And I think that that's, uh, I think that creates like a stagnant person who's going to end up being stuck in their own, you know, stuck knowing it all of a person and that's those are plus probably the downfall of the hobby it's a lot of know-it-alls a lot of people that think that they've learned everything there is to learn and know everything there is to know and and that their shit doesn't stink and i i don't like those people very much <laughs> number eight what other species do you keep personally and why so i i keep a ton but more specifically the no, the notable ones would probably be false water cobras I've just I've had them for a long time, almost as long as I've had boas, and I just really enjoy them. Um, they're intelligent animals. You walk in the room, they, you know, they follow you around. Like, hey, what are you doing, bro? You're gonna feed me? What's going on? Am I coming they, out? You know? Are they almost like cribboyish type of? Yeah. Oh, they're they're very much like a dry markon. So the dry markon complex is the other thing that I keep, and it's probably for the same reason. It's because they're real attentive, real alert, real aware of their surroundings. Um, you can just see that there's a level of intelligence in them that is not in everything else. So, so Kribos and false water cobras kind of go hand in hand in my book for the way that you keep them, the way that they interact with you and how they, and how they like live and act and thrive. And then I also keep blackheads. I like my, like my blackheads. They're pretty rad. Blackhead of pythons are just a cool, you know, they're, they're like a giant hardcore colubrid. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then I keep a lot of colubrids, a lot of smaller species colubrids, you know, here at home, I have a bunch of, you know, I got hognose and mountain kings and, you know, I, I really enjoy the colubrids. I started off is probably that being my strongest primary focus when I was young. And I've just always maintained a cool collection of colubrids, man. All right, man. Number nine, what's a common misconception about you? You know, dude, I, don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know. I don't really know what people's um, what people's perception of me is that would be misrepresented. So I, I don't know, man. I, I'm not sure that there is one. I'm pretty. I'm pretty. Uh, I'm pretty out there for who I am, and I'm pretty straightforward. And it is what it is, bro. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll actually throw one out there for you because I've actually had this uh, kind of come up in Shoot. the past, right? So I had somebody actually tell me that they thought you were cocky at one time. And the funny thing is, like, you're really? about as far from cocky as it gets. You're super humble. You're super welcoming to pretty much anybody. Like I said kind of at the beginning of the show. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate you're that. You're that dude that is willing to help anybody out, regardless whether you get a dollar from them or not. You know what I mean? So I think that's a good misconception. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Well, and it, well, 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 thank you, and I appreciate that, bro. I really, you know, there's times with life where people get busy, bro. You know, everybody's got a lot going on, and. There's times where I'm busy, but I, I would never want somebody that to come off as somebody thinking that they're not as important as the next person. Um, so, but, and, and I appreciate you, you know, the, sticking up for me, bro. Good looking out, homie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no sweat, dude. All right, man. So, uh, number 10, what makes you say, what was I thinking when you look back at your time in the hobby? <sighs> not focusing. And, and, and what's, what's coincidental <laughs> about that is I still don't. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> but... 
<laughs> Dude, I still don't, bro. You know, it's it's one of those things, man. Is that I'm passionate about all the animals, bro. So it's it's hard for me to like just focus on one thing. Like boas are definitely my center of my passion and the center of my focus. But sometimes, you know, I, I probably could have done better with a project or done a little more if I didn't have three or four other species that I was super stoked about as well. So I'd say focusing, man. I say I'd say focusing is probably the biggest thing. All right, man. Number 11, what's one tip you would give the people looking to invest in boas and in reptiles in general? So, so it's kind of the same thing along the lines of focusing. I'd say make goals, stick to them, and, 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 and make sure that you stick to your goals. Because what happens is you get sidetracked. And, and so what I always recommend is first start off with what you like. It doesn't matter what's trendy, what's popular, what's what people are telling you is a great investment, start off with what you like. And then, you know, with, with that passion of what you like and what you're, you know, digging in the animals and the hobby, then you can formulate a game plan and set some goals to move forward in that area. So that way those investments aren't just dollar signs. They're they're, they're animals that you're stoked about, passionate about, and you're going to have a lot more emphasis and a lot more drive. And moving forward and pursuing those goals and following through on them, if you're passionate about it, than if it's just somebody telling you, hey, this is a good investment animal, and you don't even like it. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. 100%. All right, man. Final question, number 12. Any shout-outs you want to give? Oh, there's, there's a lot of people that come to mind, bro. I've got a lot of good friends that are in the hobby that I do business with like daily. Some of them, we don't even talk about reptiles half the time, but uh, some of those people would be like Del Bono for sure, dude. We're boys. We go way back. We've been doing deals forever. We got a bunch of creator loans together. Um, and that's Richard Del Bono with Da Vinci Boa. Shout out for the homie. Sergio, Thomas, Kevin Johnson, and then uh, a couple of the people that, you know, the Boa community might not know as well, but uh, Jay Erickson, James is the homie. He's uh, Endless Scales. Um, Shane Wooldridge with Evergreen State Reptiles. And he does boas, but he's also a multi-species breeder, but he's a real good dude. Um, Mike Neely, Freak Show Reptiles. And Jason Doan with Skull Crushing Exotics. Those are all the people that are like in my tight circle, bro, of like the daily. You know what I mean? For sure. And, um, and, and you know, one of the things we've touched base on before was like, like marketing and promoting yourself. And there's a couple of people that's, that kind of rise to the top of my mind that really helped me, which was Dave Kaufman. And he did a couple of killer videos of our shop. That Shout got out us a to lot Big Dave content. out like, there. Yep. Oh, sure. no doubt. No doubt. And then, uh, and then, and then another dude is uh, Anthony and Granddaddy Hurt, man. He, he came through um, and did a video of our grand opening and he just posted it and I'll post it on our social media so everybody else can scope it out but he's always come through and done a lot of good videos and good promotion and i'd say you know and giving shout outs to these guys is only because they've done nothing but give me shout outs for years and help me out bro but if you want to elevate your business definitely definitely befriend a good you know youtube videographer that's got good like-minded passions and views and uh and they'll and they'll help you in return you know they'll come out and they'll highlight your animals for their content but it also helps highlight you and, and what your goals are and what your uh what your projects and direction is as an individual so i think it's a good um give and take relationship between those guys awesome man well i think that wraps it up for today mike tell the people out there what they can where they can see more about you and uh learn about your animals 
So the primary spot to find us is thereptileshop.com. Um, we're posting, we're really working hard to get that site, keep that site updated and, and, and <clears throat> is up to par as possible. There's a lot of animals on there. And then you can follow us on social media at thereptileshop.temecula on Instagram and, uh, and, the reptile shop dot, and the reptile shop on Facebook. So I, I appreciate everybody that, and all the support that everybody's given me because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a fun ride, man. I want to continue to do this for a long time. Awesome, man. Well, uh, guys out there, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. We are out. Guys, that was a great episode. Thanks to Mike Roscoe of The Reptile Shop for joining us. Join us next time as we speak with Chris Gilbert of Gilbert Boas. We're going to talk about his work with the blood and leopard gene, along with tips on how to grow your boas the right way. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Do us a favor. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube. Until next time, grow them slow.